0: The Internet History Podcast is brought to you by MetaLab. Their slogan is MetaLab, we make interfaces. For a decade, MetaLab has helped some of the world's top companies and entrepreneurs build products that millions of people use every day. You probably didn't realize it at the time, but the odds are you've used an app that they've helped design or build. Apps like Slack, Coinbase, Facebook Messenger, Oculus, Lonely Planet, and many more. MetaLab wants to bring their unique design philosophy to your project – let them take your brainstorm and turn it into the next billion dollar app, from idea sketched on the back of a napkin to a final shipped product. Check them out at metalab.co. That's metalab.co. <laughs> Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today, we've got a really special change of pace for us. David Schwartz is the chief technology officer at Ripple, the company behind the cryptocurrency XRP. What is it like to start, build, and build out a crypto startup? Is it different than the web and internet startups that we've covered on this show for almost five years now? What is Ripple? How is it unique in the crypto ecosystem? What is it trying to do for the world? All of this, and yes, why is crypto so tribal? And yes, where is the crypto space at this moment in time? This is December 9th, 2019, by the way, for posterity. Please enjoy this conversation with Ripple's David Schwartz. And please note that if you're a first time listener to this podcast, this is my hobby podcast you can listen to my day job podcast every day. It's called the Tech Meme Ride Home, where I give you the latest news and technology generally, including crypto news, in a bite-sized 15 to 20 minute podcast every weekday. So if you enjoy this particular podcast, please search Ride Home on your podcast app of choice and download the Tech Meme Ride Home to get tech news analysis every single day. David Schwartz, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Brian.
0: So I usually start out by asking people, uh, you know, what was the first computer that they had that they, you know, learned to program on and things like that. But I believe, I think you learned to program on on calculators?
1: Yeah, my father was really interested in calculators and he bought just about every calculator HP ever made. Um, he he was obsessed with slide rules going way back and then when calculators came out he kind of had the same reaction to them that probably kids today have to phones. And um and they were programmable. They were not programmed by today's standards, they were really crude, but it was a lot of fun and I was programming them to like print out banners and um we even started doing some very some actual real interesting work on them um some early genetics research was being done at the time, and it was, it was awkward because computers weren't widely available to people, and so they were using calculators to compute, like, the distance between genes, and we worked on automating those computations, so kind of got my love of computer
0: science. You know, just just for the benefit of, of uh, younger listeners out there, can you explain, not in, in any great detail, but just generally, how, how is it even possible to program on, on calculators? I mean, I, I'm assuming there's underlying... Uh, operating systems and and languages and things like that but just just tell me like what that meant to to program on calculators
1: so essentially the same sequence of steps that you would key by hand to perform a mathematical operation on a calculator you could key in and store the flow in the calculator and you could make decisions like you could say if the result of this calculation is greater than zero jump to this piece of the program otherwise jump to this other piece of the program so although it's crude by modern standards by the standards of that day, which was people calculating by hand or using, you know, slide rules, it was it was, you know, a tremendously forward,
0: and it is essentially programming in, in a real sense.
1: So, what was your? Uh, yeah. uh,
0: uh, the, my usual question is, what was your first computer? And and it can be either the first computer that that you uh, used in a, a heavy way or the first computer that you would call your own.
1: I would say the first computer I would call my own was an Apple II. Uh, my father got a TRS-80 made by Radio Shack. Uh, it, was, uh, it was broken more often than it was working because the thermal expansion caused the chips to get loose. But the Apple II was just from an aesthetic standpoint and from the, you know, I guess today people understand really easily what it means to fall in love with something, particularly like Apple makes products that, that people fall in love with. And even in that day when the Apple II came out, it had a kind of aesthetic to it, a kind of elegance and grace. I mean, I'm talking about a computer the way, you know, someone would talk about a work of art or perhaps, you know, a significant other, but it kind of had that feeling of, mm. of, of elegance and grace.
0: And so that, that, that uh, probably just multiplied your interest in programming and, and computing in general.
1: Yeah, and they were so much more powerful. The dis you know, the display on a calculator at the time was the couple you know, one to four lines of text and you could do graphics. And then the flexibility in programming calculators, typically you could have a hundred steps, and steps were very, very small. Like uh, you know, storing something in a register might take two or three steps and obviously on a on a computer. You know, it's kilobytes of memory, which sounds like nothing today. But at the time, you know, it was a tremendous increase in the capability of what you could do. And I guess part of what I fell in love with, too, is the kind of instant gratification. You write a piece of code and either it works or it doesn't work. And if it works, you sort of immediately get that reward of seeing it do the thing that you wanted it to do.
0: Uh, So uh, skipping ahead to college, um, you went to the University of Houston. You got a EE degrees. Um, This is in the early 80s, the early PC era?
1: Yeah, mid 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 80s. Mid eighties, yeah. Yeah, early PC era.
0: Um, so yeah,
1: it was kind of funny because most of my most of my my education was like pre PC. It was all you know, digital circuit design on paper. Mm. You know,
0: it's it's sort of like uh, I went to film school and I I'm old enough that we actually had to edit the 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 actual film stock with razors and things like that as opposed to <laughs> digitally. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, we were drawing out maps of circuits and like circling the common elements to simplify logic circuits on paper by hand. Yeah,
0: ex- that's the exact analogy that I'm thinking of. So um, when when you graduate, um, you, uh, I, I believe that like you're you're essentially a programmer for a few years. Like you're a software developer for Remax. I saw, but you also. You patented an early distributed computer network. Just describe for me, um, like, the, the early years of your career and, you know, in the mid to late 80s when you come out as, as a uh, software developer, like, what, what that even means.
1: It, it, I kind of didn't. I, I kind of didn't want to sort of my vision of someone who programmed for a living was was not as positive as it is today. It was almost kind of like like factory like. And so I didn't want to just be another person coding with you know a room full of people coding almost like a coding sweatshop. Um, and that's kind of what I felt about big companies at the time. I, obviously, this idea—you know—there wasn't the open-source software movement. There weren't people who were, you know, legends of software development who, you know, are, are, are to some extent household names at least among certain groups of people. It didn't feel all that interesting to me. So I looked for problems that I thought were interesting. Remax had an interesting problem with figuring out who was whose property was assessed too high and where they might they might get a tax benefit from from disputing their assessment. And then I kind of started to look at the entrepreneur side, medical device manufacturing. Uh, I was a co-founder of a company that built some early medical devices to sort of digitize data that at the time was just listened to by humans. And um, I moved to Florida and I started working for an internet service provider. That's very close to my heart,
0: very close to my heart, uh, uh, (laughs) an independent ISP, yeah.
1: Yeah, today, I kind of think of them as like gas stations. They just provide a very generic product that's not very interesting. But at the time, there were unique challenges. Um, there were new services coming on ISDN, which nobody probably knows what it is, but it's some of the earliest direct digital services that didn't mean you had to hear that horrible noise when your your modem uh, dialed up. And those technologies were very new, and there were technical challenges to deploying them on regional scale. So that that was interesting. Um and then I started moving more into the cryptography side. I started working on secure cloud storage and enterprise messaging uh for organizations like c n n and the n s a and that's kind of what got me into cryptography
0: what 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 i was gonna say what led you in the cryptography direction?
1: I just started working more and more on on those kinds of problems. security was was a big was a big thing, uh, particularly cloud storage was just starting to become a thing, and one of the issues was, you know, how can you keep your data in the cloud but also secure, which is something that we still struggle with today. Um, also, I guess there was kind of a revolution going on at that time. It, it sounds it sounds so routine today, but at the time, this idea that like if you were CNN and you had a news story someone would listen to that news story and then it's not news anymore. So it's like one-time interesting. But imagine if they could comment on the news story or talk about the news story, then they might want to come back to see other people's comments or see like the idea that you could multiply the value of information by allowing people to interact with that information was brand new. And, and that was extremely interesting at the time.
0: Yeah, and, and we've uh, talked about various aspects of that at length on the show. I'm also curious about the... Um, the... What we haven't had a lot of opportunity to talk about on the show is the early security aspects of like when the web goes mainstream, you know we've had people come on and talk about the the beginnings of things like what became SSL and stuff like that and and other people talking about how you know people were concerned that commerce would never actually take off on the web because it could never really be secured. So I'm curious if you were involved in some of the um, the, the early work around that sort of stuff as well.
1: Yeah, I mean there there was a huge transition um you know from the from the computing that we were doing in the 70s where encryption was all there was only symmetric encryption public key encryption wasn't known um outside of you know some very small circles and and those that type of encryption is not really suitable for the type of commerce that you want to do on the web you can't really arrange a secret ahead of time uh and so so um that that was the um the Public key encryption becoming broadly available made it made a tremendous difference in the ability of commerce to extend uh, on the web. And I think I think you also like you can go back even further. There was a revolution in shipping and the transport of goods. Mm. Like you can get goods across across the planet. You can get data across the planet. You can do it securely. And I guess like the thing that we were missing was money. Like the thing that you still can't move securely across mm-hmm. the planet is money. Like that is the missing piece.
0: Well, okay, that's going to be a good segue to to get us up closer to the present. Um, you know, there was a lot. I, I've said this before on the show. Uh, f- very early on, some of the earliest web startups were things like Cybercash were there was a lot of dot com era like flues even and things like that, where people were trying to do digital money in various forms, uh, probably not as sophisticated as like the crypto uh, space that exists now. But um, from very, very early on, there were a lot of people when when the Web goes mainstream and the Internet goes mainstream. People very early on thought, well, we, we, we got to get rid of cash. like uh, uh, Money and transactions should all be digital. Um, I'm curious if you had any perspective on like, the, the very first generations of ideas like that and people trying to, to make uh, money digital.
1: It, it, it definitely is not the case that Bitcoin sort of came out of nowhere. It's not the case that like one day there was Bitcoin and before that there was absolutely nothing. There were a number of, of efforts, some not based around cryptography at all, some just based around a central counterparty that would just sort of hold everybody's money and would provide an easy way for people to transfer that money. Um, and then there was, a, there was work on building systems that were somewhat more decentralized in the sense that there wasn't one central counterparty. Um, and I think I think the reason that that it's different now, the thing that really uh, created the recent excitement around online movement of funds, is the fact that we have systems now that don't require trusted counterparties. I think that's that's the breakthrough that I think is going to you know is, is opening the dam to this um, this new this new uh, development that's happening now.
0: And a lot of that work was done in in the two thousands. Again, I'm I'm using the framework of of what this show covers. Like so, post uh, the dot com bubble bursting, a lot of that stuff that led up to like Satoshi and the white paper happened in the two thousands.
1: Yeah, things like Hashcash and mm-hmm. Ripple Pay, mm-hmm. and, and these early um, these early e money and e gold projects. Um, some of them were basically just, I'll hold everybody's money and provide electronic transfer of it. And some of them were conceptually more interesting based around sources of value that were not tied to a central counterparty. And, and I think the thing, that, the thing that makes the internet great is that I, if I'm going to send you an email, I don't have to think about where in the world you are or who you're using as your email provider. I just need your email address, and it just works. Mm-hmm. And I think to have that aspect, to have this idea that I just need to know who I'm sending the money to, and it just works… For that, you need these kind of decentralized systems that uh, that we've only been able to produce since you know 2009 or so. So
0: you're already uh, deep into cryptography and things like that. Uh, just real briefly, can you tell me about um, uh, getting interested in the modern uh, crypto space as it evolved? Uh, you know, especially post Satoshi and things like that.
1: Yeah, I think there were a lot of things going on that were interesting to me. One was the idea of these systems that are sort of self-regulating, that they don't need somebody to enforce the rules because everybody enforces the rules. I think if there's like a core ethos behind modern cryptocurrencies, it's this idea that everybody enforces the rules. The way that you prevent somebody from creating currency out of nowhere or sending the same currency to different places is because nobody will let them do that. Everybody independently um, enforces everything. Is um you you mentioned
0: Ripple Pay already? I, I think that was developed in like two thousand four or something like that. Is that? I'm trying to get to the the actual Ripple origin story. Um, is that the way to go? Like, uh, tell us about Ripple Pay, or um, or just start with telling us about the the actual Ripple origin story itself.
1: So Ripple Pay was developed in two thousand and four by Ryan Fuger. And he did not have the piece that Bitcoin had. He didn't have the ability to create a single decentralized currency. So he had this idea that if he couldn't create a single decentralized currency, what if he created a lot of centralized currencies? And as long as those currencies all interoperate and and you have your choice of which currencies to interact with, then that's almost as good essentially as a decentralized currency. And the interesting thing about that concept is that he envisioned transactions sort of rippling across these relationships. So A trust B and B trust C, then a transaction can ripple from A to C. And that's where the name Ripple came from. And that capability still exists in the XRP ledger today. Uh, Starting in around 2011, the modern sort of XRP Ripple story started when we tried to combine uh, ideas from Bitcoin of this, well, we can have a single, a single asset that is, in fact, decentralized with this idea of having a, a ledger that can track any number of assets.
0: And how do you uh, personally get involved in, in that project?
1: Jed McCaleb had the initial idea to try to – he was looking specifically at the mining aspect of Bitcoin, and he wanted to come up with a better way to, have, to come to consensus to solve what we call the double spend problem, the idea that you have to be able to stop somebody once they've sent funds from sending those same funds somewhere else. Um, he hired me in, two, in November of 2011 to see if we could create a distributed agreement protocol, what we now call consensus, um, without using proof of work, without using mining. And, and in those early days, you know, we, didn't, we didn't know if it would work, but we also, even if it did work, we didn't know if it would be good for anything. Like it's possible that it works, but it's just worse than everything else that's out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we discovered in probably early 2012 that not only would it work, but that it would have some significant advantages over proof of work, including being cheaper and faster. And so we put together the idea for the XRP ledger with Arthur Brito um, in early 2012.
0: Let me come back to that real quick because um, I, I like to ask that about founders um, generally. Like, did you have a vision when you started working for it for what it could be good at, or did, was it more that this is a this is a clever idea and let's put it together and see what it can be
1: good at? Definitely the latter. That's a form of design that I kind of like a lot. So most of the time when you're building something, you know exactly what the requirements are. Like someone says, hey, I want an airplane that can hold more people, or I want an airplane that goes faster or uses less fuel. This was kind of the opposite. We, we, are, we were trying to build a particular technology and trying to see if a particular technology would work. And we built all the pieces sort of the best we thought we could build them from an abstract technological point of view. Like, obviously you want it to be fast. Obviously you want it to be cheap, but we didn't try to make any of the fine decisions because we didn't know what problem we'd end up solving. It wasn't until we sort of finished building it that we step back and said, okay, what is this good for? You know, like if you invented some new material, is it is it lightweight? Is it rust-proof? Is mm-hmm. it cheap to make? You know, is it strong? And then and then once you have its combination of characteristics, you look for the problem. And of course, then you have to go back and sort of rethink your decisions to make sure that you're suited to the right problem. And the problem that we hit on essentially is payments. Uh, and in particular cross currency payments, so you know if i have u s dollars and I want to pay you euros or something, that problem is really well solved by the technologies that we develop
0: yeah that that's the that's the entrepreneurial sort of um inventor story that I always love to hear so okay, just real briefly, and i 'm not going to ask you to you know give us a, a whole dissertation or something, but tell me in broad strokes how x r p solves that sort of cross-currency, interbank transaction, how that solves that problem.
1: So XRP is a pure digital asset that, that isn't that isn't linked to any particular jurisdiction. It's sort of a native asset on the XRP ledger with rules enforced by everybody who participates. And so it, it's, it's in a fundamental way equally accessible to everyone. And when you want to make a payment, what you can easily do is move XRP between different regions. So for example, if you have a bunch of people who are transacting in US dollars and XRP can get out of there, and you have a bunch of people who are transacting in let's say Singapore dollars and XRP can get into there, XRP can serve as the sort of trustless connection between the two regions which is something that you can't really do. You can't do that with U.S. dollars because if you have U.S. dollars, they have to be somewhere. They have to be at some bank or in some system. XRP can sort of equally be everywhere. It can be in a U.S. system and then it can be in a system in some other part of the world in in a couple of seconds. So it has that ability to have one pile of XRP and be able to deploy it anywhere throughout the system very rapidly. So um,
0: one one of the reasons why I was super interested to talk to you is because um, unlike you know some other cryptocurrencies, you know uh, Ripple is actually sort of a startup. You know you've you've taken um, um, investment money from like GV and Andreessen Horowitz. You know names that that listeners of the show would know. Um, is I, I, what I'm curious about is what. Uh, when you're when you're starting this project and you're thinking of taking it into this sort of a startup sort of um, mode and you're you're taking venture capital money, um, are you thinking of it as like other people I've talked to like uh, people that f- started uh, open source projects and then you know things like Red Hat are companies that are built around supporting these open source projects. I'm just curious about like the business model that you guys are thinking of. Versus something like Bitcoin that that is supposed to always be open source and supported by the community and things like that.
1: So so Ripple is a Ripple is a you know a company and then there's sort of XRP this this digital asset and there's the XRP ledger that it trades on. Mm-hmm. X, uh, Ripple we think of ourselves as a, as a startup. We have a, you know a vision and a mission. We have customers. Um, and we're kind, of, we're kind of innovating in the payment space. Our customers are primarily banks and financial institutions, and we bring them payment solutions that sort of integrate payment and settlement so that they're faster, they're cheaper, and they have the ability to settle using a digital asset. One of the things that, that that kind of surprised me is how ancient the payment the payment technology space is. Like if you're, your bank might have a really nice website, right. but if you go one or two layers down, you're in the 70s as far as the plumbing goes. And so we realized that if people were going to be able to use digital assets, they were going to be able to transact quickly. We were going to have a global payment system. It, it could not be built on technology that was that ancient. So what Ripple is doing is building a network, we call it RippleNet, for banks and financial institutions that's built on these modern principles and is capable of settling using a digital asset because all the parameters of the payment are known in advance.
0: Now, you you say that your, your customers directly are, are banks and things like that, but if if your system is successful, this would be good for consumers because…
1: It's a long way to consumer adoption. I think I might be in the minority on this view. Um, for some of your older listeners who are familiar with like how the internet worked, we're kind of in the dial-up stage where you know you're you find an internet service provider and they send you a piece of paper of how to edit your DOS batch files with TCP/IP settings. It, it's early for that type of consumer adoption. But I do think it makes sense at some point in the future to have consumer adoption of cryptocurrencies, simply because if we're going to be participants in sort of like a global market, it makes sense to have a digital asset that you can send you know, anywhere in the world in just a couple of seconds. I also think that like, for people who live in the United States or parts of the world that have stable native currencies… Um, I'm perfectly happy using dollars. I know that there's some inflation going on, but it works fine. And I have to pay my bills in dollars. You know, I get my salary in dollars, so it makes sense for me. But if you imagine people living in part of the world where they don't have currencies that are that stable, uh, they may be interested in having choice of what currencies they can hold and spend uh, very, very quickly. Uh, it's just I, – I don't want the adoption to get ahead of the technology, what we sort of overpromised. Mm. It took a long time for the internet to get to the point where it was suitable for you know, anybody to use it, and you didn't have to really understand the technology in great detail in order to be able to get it to work. There are a lot of companies that are working on doing that kind of retail adoption for cryptocurrencies, but I think, I think that, is a, that is a bit away.
0: Yeah. I'm going to come back to that at the end, uh, what you just said. Uh, I'm going to switch to the questions that I had to rely on asking people that are more into crypto than I am. Um, uh, Just a couple of things real quick. Uh, So Ripple is pre-mined versus, you know, we always hear about Bitcoin miners and things like that. So um, just real briefly, what is that distinction? Is it... um, does does it make a difference that um, that there there's not you know thousands of people around the world uh you know using these graphics chips to to, to create the currency it's already created right
1: well first of all I kind of have to point out that I, I i like to to keep concepts distinct I like to use the term ripple to refer to the company and oh I'm sorry xrp I'm so, so sorry so... see
0: this is my ignorance That's so please fine. xrp sorry
1: no Oh, A lot of people do that, and the only problem, the only problem is that it just – I'd really like to just make sure that there's no confusion because they are two distinct things. So anyway, um, so yeah, XRP is the native token. Ripple is the enterprise company building financial platforms. So yeah, XRP is not mined at all. Uh, we di- when we initially developed the XRP ledger, the idea was to get rid of proof of work, which is what mining is part of. Hmm. Um, it's not an adversarial system like the Bitcoin ledger is. Like If, I, if you're mining and I'm mining – we're competing for sort of a fixed pool of resources. And that creates sort of adversarial interests that that make the security model more difficult. The XRP ledger is cooperative. Everybody is working together to sort of advance it. And so it doesn't, which means that if you're gonna improve the stability of the network, I want you to participate because you're not taking anything away from me. And I think that can make a more secure model, but it does mean that the system can't sort of give out the digital asset. Um, When the system was created around June of 2012, uh, the, all the XRP that will ever exist existed in that Genesis ledger, that $100 billion. Um, I, I, think, I, I, I think proof of work has sort of distributed the asset broadly, but, but miners have high expenses. They're, you know, they're ASICs, they're power, um, and so they wind up basically just selling it, and that sucks money out of the ecosystem. Uh, the only thing that, that mining does that the XRP ledger doesn't really have inherently is predictable market supply. Uh because you know the rate at which Bitcoin is going to be mined, and so that gives you some predictability, we set up an escrow system on the XRP ledger that releases xRP sort of on a schedule, so you do get that kind of predictable supply
0: guaranteed supply right um and yeah, so again this is this is me relying on others um, and actually, I read some about this like they among other crypto uh enthusiasts. Um, there's the debate about whether or not XRP and Ripple truly is um, decentralized, uh, and and but I I also read that you recently published a white paper where you explained in detail why you feel like Ripple and XRP is actually even more decentralized than say Bitcoin is. So tell me a little bit about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the XRP Ledger will continue to exist even if Ripple goes away. There are no permissions to do anything on the XRP Ledger. Anybody who wants to can download and run the software. Um, There are about 150 servers on the Ledger that operate as validators. Uh, It's just because that's the number of people who have chosen to do it. Ripple runs about nine validators. Um, So I, and I, I also think that it's easy to say that like a system is decentralized without looking closely at the details, but we don't know who's providing the mining power on Bitcoin, and we don't know – we know that a lot of it is coming from China. We know that one company, Bitmain, is manufacturing a significant fraction of the Bitcoin mining hardware. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that money is going you know, into one company, into one company, and that also gives a lot of control. In Bitcoin, the miners choose which transactions go into blocks and when they go into blocks. Uh, the XRP ledger, like I said, is a co- is a cooperative process, um, and and it's just it's just not practical to censor it simply because you can't like you you would have to you would have to get a 51% control to you know, like to even start censoring it. So the XR- the XRP ledger is entirely open source. Hundreds of people run the software. Every server enforces all of the system's rules. Ripple could go away entirely as a company, and the XRP ledger will continue to operate. Um, And I think another important thing is that you have to remember proof-of-work systems like Bitcoin have to incentivize mining to be secure. Miners secure the chain. And that means that if you want to change the rules in Bitcoin, you have to drag along enough miners to make your chain secure. The XRP ledger doesn't have that attribute. There's no need to incentivize mining. Uh, That makes it faster, full confirmation in about five or six seconds, higher throughput. Um, over a thousand transactions per second i I think we got that decision right um, Several
0: people wanted me to ask you how do you feel about uh i guess the tribal nature in in the crypto sphere, about how people become really partisan for uh one project versus another um, how do you feel about that personally? Or even is that a challenge to to the Ripple and XRP project generally? What, what do you think about that?
1: I, I think that's incredibly unfortunate. I, I mean, if the crypto markets are sending us any signal, it's that we're all in this together. Uh, we should be working together to gr- kind of grow the pie instead of fighting over slices of, you know, today's use case. Uh, they're very much like religious battles. You have influential people who 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 are, committed to a position that like one digital asset is the best and they can't acknowledge any of even the strengths of others or the weaknesses of their own, which makes it difficult for people to make good decisions about, you know, which assets to use or what to use them for. Um, Ripple is really focused on the on the use case of global payments, um, but we're very excited to see innovation in the space and we're excited to see the XRP ledger used for many different innovations in the future beyond payments. But I have to say that the the tribalism really, it's chasing a lot of people out of the space because uh, some platforms, particularly Twitter, are just extremely hostile. Um, And and I think we need to fix that. Again, uh, if the markets – if the crypto markets are sending us any signals that we're all in this together and we need to work together to grow.
0: What you just said is actually very interesting to me. I I think – You know, from an outsider perspective, it does feel like um, it's so tribal because everyone sort of feels that there's a one winner will take all. But what you just said was almost like, well, but there could be multiple use cases. So, you know, there could be multiple successful projects, depending on what they're used for. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, in the very early days, I kind of had that thought too. I was like, well, everybody will use Bitcoin for everything. Of course, it was the only cryptocurrency out there. But there are legitimate differences in requirements. Bitcoin has a 10-minute block time. There's no way you can tell me that that's the universal best block time for everybody to use for everything. I don't, I don't think it's going to be a winner-take-all market, not, not at all. I think you're going to see different use cases, and you're going to see different assets that kind of find their appeal with people with different requirements.
0: All right. A couple questions to wrap up then with. Um, again, on this show, uh, we've spoken to a lot of uh, web and Internet entrepreneurs and, and startup veterans and things like that over the last 30 years. Um, having been, you know, a, a veteran of startups yourself and, and in various spaces, do you feel like in the crypto space or maybe even just specifically Ripple, is it a startup like any other or is there something different about being in in this space that makes um, a project like Ripple and XRP different than, say, oh, we've just invented a, a better chat app or something like that?
1: I, I think there are definitely some differences. I mean, there are certainly some similarities. Um, I, I think every startup has employees who are deeply committed to, you know, and understand their vision and mission. And they have people who come from different worlds, like we have people from financial institutions, we have people who have decades of experience in secure computing, and we have people in the blockchain space just out of college. Like, I, I think we have those in a lot of startups, but I think one thing that makes us unique is that we have a tremendous amount of attention focused on us, and we're in a space that has a tremendous amount of attention on us. We're in many ways sort of treated like a public company because people are very interested in what we're doing. They look very closely at everything that we say. We're very focused on practical solutions to problems, um, and, and you know, we're very focused on partnerships and applying technology. I will say though that the level of commitment, the fact that I would say that every single employee of this company, regardless of whether they're in a technical field or whether they're in, you know, legal department, regulatory engagement, human resources, they all understand exactly what it is we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it. And I think that's very special.
0: Well that's interesting because one analogy that occurred to me was, you know, a lot of the earliest uh web entrepreneurs that I, I spoke with, even people at like AOL, they all sort of have said at various times that a lot of our efforts and energy early on were spent explaining to people why you needed this, sort of not only evangelizing just for the internet or for, uh, uh, you know, online and digital or anything. Um, So I'm wondering if if you still feel like that that's a a lot of the heavy lifting that you guys have to do is, like, not justifying why this technology has to exist, but, like, explaining it to people and and maybe pushing it into the mainstream is, is... what I'm asking?
1: Yeah, I, I think there are two factors to that that we do encounter. So one of them is we very often get like, why don't you just do? And then something that's just not very practical to do. And, and I think another one is just skepticism about, you know, is the time right? Um, it, it is are, are the entrenched interests going to like prevent you from doing this? We do see a lot of skepticism, and, and of course, like most big ideas don't succeed. You know, that's probably just by numbers. You know that that's just that's just the way it is.
0: Um, all right, so this is the, this is the final question, and it, it might be a little unfair because I'm I'm again trying to force you into the, the paradigm that this podcast um, uh, is used to for almost two hundred episodes. But if we if we do do the analogy of the internet going mainstream, of the web going mainstream and the dot-com era, and the bubble bursting, and you know I should probably say we're recording this on November 28th, (laughs) depending on where the market is when this comes out. Uh, Where would you say we are, um, if you're making the analogy to the web going mainstream, uh, are we before the bubble bursting, is the bubble bursting now, and then the web 2.0 is going to come along and reinvent everything? Where do you think we are using the web going mainstream as an analogy?
1: I think we're kind, of at, we're, we're kind of at that stage where people see the technology, they see the promise, early adopters are starting to get some of the benefits of the technology, but we're, but we're not quite ready for that sort of mass consumer adoption and i think like you know as 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 someone at ripple i think i would say that like enterprise adoption is sort of the gateway to get us to that consumer adoption and i think like the web and the internet is a good analogy like the first companies to come to the internet were universities, and mm-hmm. they were governments and military, and then kind of like big information service providers. Like, well, the internet is something else that we can offer. And big like airlines and 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 a car companies started putting content on the internet, and it didn't become like this great democratizer of information until much later. And so I think we're kind of at that stage where we're sort of ready to see that institutional adoption and like techie early adopters are playing around with it like, you know, with, like they were with their dial-up modems and DOS tcpip batch file setting
0: well you know so right the 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 analogy that occurs to me is that you know airlines again were booking online through like saber and things like that since the 60s people had email since the 70s but they were people in universities and corporations and stuff my mom didn't get an email address till 1996 right so that's sort of the analogy that you're making
1: i think it'll go a little faster than some of those earlier stories because we have the internet and so things can – like look at how quickly texting caught on in the United States. You know, A couple of years ago, you'd say, oh, Americans are never going to text, although you know it's catching on in Asia, and then all of a sudden everybody's texting. Mm-hmm. So things can catch on more quickly, but I, I, I do think that, that it's, it's kind of early to try to sort of pitch mass consumer adoption. I think we need to see institutional adoption. We need better infrastructure um, just like we did with the internet, um, but, I, but, but I think that's happening now. So we're, I think we're kind of in this stage where we have a lot of work to do. And it might get a little less sexy, you know, because there won't be this, these like big disrupting things like right off the bat. But I think we'll see this sort of gradual increase.
0: Well, David Schwartz. I hope. Yeah, well, yes. And, and good luck to you uh, laying the infrastructure for that, because the infrastructure has to be there before accidentally the, the mainstreaming can happen anyway. Um, David Absolutely. Schwartz. Thanks for, thanks for coming on the podcast and, and playing along with my uh, trying to fit you into the paradigm of, of uh, the web and, and Internet history.
1: Thanks, Brian. My pleasure.
0: If you like what you've heard on this episode, please support us by subscribing to the podcast so you can get great news stories and conversations every two weeks. And please buy the book that was based on this podcast how the internet happened from netscape to the iphone by me brian mccullough order it now wherever books are sold how the internet happened and if you weren't aware i host a daily tech news podcast every weekday that comes out at 5 p.m in that show i tell you what happened that day in the world of tech it's only 15 to 20 minutes long and it's great if you love tech news Search your podcast app for Ride Home to find the show. It's called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Thanks.